Every book, every volume you see has a soul. The soul of the person who wrote it, and the soul of those who read it and lived it and dreamed with it. Every time a book changes hands, every time someone runs his eyes down its pages, its spirit grows and strengthens. Carlos Ruiz Zafon. You're listening to Writing Roots, brought to you by Aspen House Publishing. Welcome to Writing Roots. I'm Lee Hall. And I'm Lee Esses. I've spent a fair amount of time looking at and researching this particular topic today, so I wanted to share it with everybody because I think it's a fascinating part of writing your story. We're talking about audience participation. It's not something people really think about because the audience isn't there. When people think of audience participation, they usually think of a stage play or comedy acts or something like that, where the feedback from the audience can make a difference in the environment on stage. The ideas there still apply to a book. Your audience participation in your book matters for how they view it in the end. There is a difference between audience participation and the suspension of disbelief. We are going to address that in more detail on next Thursday's episode, so hang tight, but we wanted to address a little bit of differences here. Mostly, you want the audience to participate, but you don't want to pop that suspension of disbelief. Those two often go hand in hand. If the audience is participating in your book, they are right there in the suspension of disbelief. As soon as they stop participating, that suspension usually breaks. So you want to bring them into your world and don't give them an opportunity to fall back into their own world. We will define suspension of disbelief just a little bit more later, but for now, it means effectively reminding them that they're reading a book. Giving them a reason to not believe other aspects of your story because something isn't plausible enough. In our writing group, when we share stories, we will often mark when we set the book down. Now, for one reader mentioning that, it might be they have to use the restroom, it might be it's time to take the french fries out of the oven, whatever. But if everybody marks the same paragraph of this is when I put the book down to go use the restroom then there's kind of a red flag there and we want to address it. That means that the suspension of disbelief has been popped at some point. Let's get into audience participation. The very first step to having an audience participate is having an audience. You need to know who your readers are in order to write a book that they will want to participate in. More often than not, you are your first audience member. If you are not entertained, your audience is not entertained. If you are a middle-aged female, there's a good chance that your audience is a middle-aged female, unless you're reading outside of the stereotype, which is possible. But as you're writing your book, keep your target audience in mind, mostly yourself. If I'm not laughing at the character's jokes, I can't trust that my audience will also be laughing at these jokes. One main exception to being in your target audience is writing children's fiction or young adult fiction. Most of the time, young adult authors, children book authors are not young adults and children. It helps to either know someone or have like some good beta readers in that target audience 
that can give you feedback that applies to them. This is the only time when you get feedback going, I liked it, and that's acceptable feedback, as if they're seven years old. But as you're writing your story, keep one particular person in mind. Write to that person, if it's not you. Write to that seven-year-old. And that tends to be what will give you more audience members, not less. When you get focused on your target audience and you don't try to appeal to everybody. If they threw a rom-com flavor in the latest Avengers with some historical fiction and like a cooking show, if they threw all of that into the latest Avengers movie, your target is too broad. The more you focus it down, especially in today's world with the internet, you can get that niche audience and that following of people who really like your book because those people are out there. There are others like you that like this style. It's a matter of finding them. Quick little side note here about target audiences and reviews that you may receive. If you are getting people to review your book that are not in your target audience, take it with a grain of salt. Because if they are not in that audience that you wrote for, the likelihood that they're going to like it is way lower. And if you're seeing a fair amount of negative reviews on your Amazon profile, maybe take a look at your cover. Your cover might be drawing the wrong target audience to bring into your story. And if they're expecting one thing and getting another, they're not going to enjoy it quite as much. The cover, the blurb, honestly, even the title, all of those things affect who is going to pick up your book. And if it's not right... The wrong people are reading. And that's how you get bad reviews. It's not that my fight scenes don't make sense. It's that my grandma doesn't know how to fight. And so they won't make sense to her. Once you've identified your target audience and are aware of their certain quirks and likes and dislikes, it's time to consider the content of your book What in the book actually gets the audience to latch onto it and keep going? One of those things is leaving things to the imagination. That allows your audience to participate in the storytelling process. If you're giving too much detail about exactly how she looks, they're going to separate themselves from that character. Well, I'm not thin and blonde. I'm going to have a more difficult time relating to that character. It's very interesting for me to see one of the young adult drama authors that I read, seeing her transition from the first couple of books to her more recent books. The first couple always had specific descriptions of the main characters. Even though it was a first-person perspective, you knew she was short, thin, blonde hair, green eyes, whatever. Like You were basically given a height-weight chart that you'd see at a doctor's office. (laughs) for the character. And it was very hard to connect because I'm like, I, I don't identify very well with that kind of character. I'm on the tall end of average, dark hair, and I don't fit in that category. In the later books, she started to become more vague, just starting to say dark hair or vague descriptions. And it fits better. It allows the reader to be that main character more which is very important in young adult fiction. 
I do want to give a little caveat here. Details are important to your storytelling. They're an easy way to immediately immerse your reader into what's going on. If they walk into that tavern and they smell that stale beer smell, your audience knows what that smells like and then they're automatically attached to it. So what you give description to ends up being a lot of that question mark. We went to a writing retreat in the beginning of February and they gave me a number for how much information should be in the reader's imagination and how much information should be in the writer's imagination. And I realized in my own writing, that number is very different. The number they gave us is 70% writer, 30% of your story should be your reader contributing to that character, that story in some way. They're coming up with somebody they know in their own imagination. My numbers turned out to be closer to 50-50. Because if I'm spending time on description, I have to intentionally be at a particular moment because of my writing style. When providing detail, remember the iceberg theory that we've talked about anytime we mention world building. Present a little bit. Know a lot. What you know will come out in your writing through detail. But you don't need to give us a chart of every person's height and weight. I would say light on details of characters, medium on details of the world. Like Lee said, good details of sensory things, smells, sights, sounds, that can get your reader into the story more than details about a character's hair color and eye color. And a lot of those details, people will say, use your five senses. While yes, I agree, I would caution you against using all five senses at once in the same description. Pick one thing or pick three things, depending on how much time your character is spending thinking about it. If they're walking in the field, it might have a certain smell with those summer grasses. We know what that smells like. But if it's moderate temperature, they're not going to think about how it feels. So you don't need to really toss that part into the information. So find a decent balance between giving them enough to dive in and overwhelming them. It is difficult, but it's possible with time and practice. This is a hard concept to teach. It's one that you have to learn by doing. And reading will help you develop those instincts, not only for how you write it, but for how you understand it and how you read it and how your target audience reads it, if you're reading that particular genre. Let's move on to another way that you can get and break audience participation. There's always something a little bit dangerous about fudging real-world facts in a real-world kind of book. I have been reading through the Jack Reacher series. I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. But the main character's rank when he left the military is not accurate for the types of work that he's been doing. So people who are former military recognize that Major is kind of not quite the right rank for him, but it's really not a big deal in the story. So they kind of let it go because no one else writes quite like Lee Child. If you haven't built an audience yet, that is something that you need to be aware of unconsciousness is also a thing that is fudged all of the time. So if I'm going to knock somebody out 
and they're out for more than six seconds or so, there's going to be severe brain damage. There's not enough time to tie somebody up and throw them in the trunk. There's not enough time to get away. There's maybe enough time to kick their gun away. In reality, this is something that audience members, if they know the difference, they've accepted and kind of go, yeah, I get it. I get they're not being accurate, but we're going to allow it because this is a tool in the storytelling process. Another thing that you see a lot, especially in crime procedural TV shows, is DNA testing. (laughs) I work in a police department. Granted, we are a small department in a small town, but I'm pretty sure this applies to even big departments. You still have to send that off to the Department of Justice because they're the ones that actually have the capability to do DNA testing on blood samples and stuff like that. And it is a long waiting process. Wait, you mean my detective can't scrape blood off of the pavement and then bring it to the lab and then she can run it through the machine and she can give it back to him and then they'll know in two hours who the bad guy is? Yeah, no way. This is another one of those things that I think most audiences, for the sake of the plot, accept that this is a tool and you as an author can stretch or squish how long that takes to get those DNA results back. These are things that you can do as an author to go, okay, well, while we're waiting on results and then the results can come back at an incredibly convenient time, not a month and a half before the trial, three years after they caught the guy, they can get the information when you, the writer, the storyteller, deems worthy. Another fact that we fudge in storytelling is the haircuts and hair dyeing. You see this often in like action stories, is when I see it at least, when the character needs to go into hiding somehow. They're going to go into the gas station bathroom and use the their pocket knife to cut their hair and then dye their hair real quick. And then when they leave, it looks normal. Ask anybody who's actually dyed hair before. Doesn't work that way. There are stains on the scalps, and if you weren't careful on your hands, and it's still wet. We just kind of let it happen for the sake of the story, but this doesn't happen in real life this way. Also, no Mulan haircutting here. You can't just take (laughs) a sword sword and go whoosh and have a perfectly level bob haircut. That's just not how it works. I had a book that I never published that I wrote like that where someone else chopped her hair off from behind and it was in a braid and it had this like nice cute A-line that everyone else, it became a fashion. I knew writing it that wasn't how it worked, but it was a plot point, so I let it happen anyway. I mean, if they gathered it from behind... It was braided. Okay. Single low braid. Single low braid, and then they just... Woof. It wouldn't exactly be even on either side, but that's not too far away from how it would be because you would have longer in the front and shorter in the back. But yeah, it still wouldn't look good. Yeah. (laughs) So that's one of those things that you can play with as an author. But if you fudge this particular fact, your audience is going to be okay with it, even if they know that it's not accurate. And the last one that we want to talk about with fudging realism is combat. This is a lot a result of people who write not knowing combat and people who read not being able to follow it. 
that's one thing that Lee actually struggles with a little bit because she does have that combat training. I've gotten better. I will say that. (laughs) My newer stuff is a little better than what we're putting out right now. (laughs) She writes very technical with the combats, like action by action. It works if you can think like that, which for her target audience isn't bad, but it's a dangerous line to pursue because you want to find a balance between accuracy, understandable, and cool. Yes. There are certain things in combat that you don't want to leave out, crossing your feet before you unwind and get him in the gut, whatever, because it makes him look like he doesn't know what he's doing if he doesn't start that way. And then there are some things like throwing a, we call it a cover, but a hand sort of to block any potential punch as a distraction before your real punch comes in underneath. Because it's it's a habit. It's not something he's thinking about doing. I recently spoke with an author who wrote military, and she's more well-published and well-known than I am. And I asked her, how do you approach this style, this question of technique versus understandability? And she says she goes with technique every time. And I thought that was interesting because I had an elbow lock. And technically, you're supposed to slam your hand right behind above the elbow. And that locks the elbow much more firmly and you can control the person. But I didn't want it to look like the character missed. And she's like, just do it technically accurate and that's going to be a better way to go. It makes sense because my target audience will understand that as compared to if somebody's reading a rom-com, they're less likely to understand that because they don't have that physical training. So to kind of put that in perspective, I read a action mystery novel that bordered on romance. It was written for the kindness of people who read romance novels more than the kinds of people who read action novels. All of the fights and encounters in that book were, we rolled on the ground scratching and clawing and, (laughs) you know, trying to knee anything within range. So there was nothing technical about it, But for the audience, it works because your audience in general who reads romance is not looking for a specifically detailed fight. When I am creating characters, their fighting style is paramount to who they are. It's a reflection of who they are, not only their martial art, but how they use their environment, how they work with others if they're the lone wolf or if they're a team player. These are parts, facets of the character that are very important to me when I'm designing the character. And then there's the cool aspect of this. I saw this represented most recently in the Netflix show The Witcher. I don't remember if I've talked about it on this podcast before, but in the scene, I think it's in the first episode where he is in Blaviken and he's fighting the men and ends up fighting Renfri. They show him fighting with a long sword in a way that you could really only fight with a dagger or a very short sword. The fighting style is very lightsaber-esque. Yes. He's using a long sword with an ice pick grip, and it just... For me, who I have done a lot of research into sword fighting specifically for my books... I'm not personally a sword fighter. I don't really have access to resources to do that. But I watch that and I go, you can't do that. Yeah. 
There's a fair amount of beheading, which it takes a sturdier sword with the agility of a saber, which is a less sturdy sword than his longsword. I watched a behind-the-scenes breakdown of that fight, and it suddenly made a ton of sense because he was using a half-sword. They had it cut off halfway down so that they could CGI in all of the stabs and the slashes, and he could do all of those fighting moves without actually harming anyone. Huh. I I was watching it, and I was like, that now makes a ton of sense because he wasn't actually manipulating a full-length sword in the choreography. But it was cool. It was. I have to admit that myself. It was a very cool scene and a very well-done cinematography in that whole thing. Even though I went like, ah, that's not how this works, I was also like, but it does look really cool. And I kept watching the show. So it's finding the balance, even if you have someone in your audience that will look at it and be like, that's not how it's done. Is there a cool factor there that will help them forgive it and just move on? It reminds me of Sanderson's zeroth law of magic, which is air on the side of awesome. So there are several things that audiences overall will accept, even though they know it's wrong. That is a fine line to tread. So know the tropes within your genre, and that will help you understand where your audience is coming from. Another aspect of audience participation, and this is one that I find extra fascinating, is giving your audience information that your characters don't have. This is the basic rule of suspense. Your audience knows that the monster is down that alley. They know that the bad guy's in the forest. So that when the main characters, who understandably don't know, go into the alley or the forest, you fear for them, but you understand why they're going down there. If your main character knows, then you get frustrated with their stupidity. If you want a case study on knowing something that your main character doesn't, the movie Bolt is fantastic in that regard. Because the main character, who is a dog, doesn't know that he's actually a star of a TV show. He thinks he actually has superpowers because of the mechanics of Hollywood. But you, as the audience, understand what's actually going on. The styrofoam doesn't have an effect on his superpowers. It's an interesting story to just watch because it's fun. And then watch it again with the understanding of audience participation. It's a fascinating story to watch. This is a lot more difficult to do in books. It's relatively easy in film, especially like horror films, but it's hard to do in writing. A lot of it depends on the point of view that you're writing in. So whether it's first person, third person, third person omniscient, that will determine how you get that information out. If you're writing in first person, presenting things that your characters don't know that your readers do is really really difficult because you are writing from that character's point of view. Bolt is a little bit easier in that regard because he's a dog and we sort of forgive him not understanding reality from fiction and not really understanding the movie making process because he's a dog. But in your writing, if you're writing from first person and that's the only character you write the whole thing from, suspense is very difficult. You can have a 
mystery novel, so you are coming up with theories as your character is coming up with theories. You both get new information, but you can think about it differently. That is a way to execute that. But the suspense, the biting your nails, hoping the character does this or that, needs to have a very obvious excuse for why he's doing something you as a reader wouldn't do. A lot easier with third person omniscient, or if you're doing third person close like I do, multiple characters' points of view. So one character can see the bad guy run into the woods, and then the other character, who doesn't know this, but now the reader does, the other character can go into the woods. This is becoming more of a trend in writing that I I personally really enjoy. I love seeing different character point of views in a single book. But the younger audience you have, the less you can do multiple character point of views. Because if you're writing, say, for a 10-year-old, they're not necessarily going to be able to follow as well several different character point of views. So if you look at writing historically... More often than not, pre-19, I believe it was 1907, pre that number, it's basically all just one point of view. And I heard this person tell me this, and I heard this person tell me this, and Watson's following Sherlock. We never really see things from Sherlock's point of view. 1907, I believe it was, editing in film was invented. We suddenly got to see the world with multiple points of view, and that changed writing dramatically. It ends up being a little bit slower because that affected Hollywood first. Even now, you may run into publishers who only want one point of view for their story. I have a very difficult time writing that. I want to write at least two points of view so that we can be following a lot of things that are going on. I think most audiences who have seen a movie can follow several different points of view at once. There are also negatives to having just one person's point of view, other than losing that ability to see the whole world. I actually see this a lot in online commentary about Harry Potter, because it was mostly written from Harry Potter's point of view in third person, and he is dense. (laughs) Yeah, He's a teenage boy, you have to kind of give him some room there. But there's so many jokes that fly around about, like, things that don't make sense in the world. People are like, oh, yeah, that's just because Harry didn't notice. So that's a little bit of a danger there. Like, if you're writing from one person's point of view, how well do they pay attention to the world around them? And that can make a difference in what kind of information you can get to your readers. One of the reasons why I think... Horror novels work really well, far better than horror movies, is because a lot of the monsters take place in your reader's imagination. Your reader sees the most terrifying version of the It creature. So any It movie is never going to live up to the clown that I saw when I read the book for the first time. This especially works for, say, H.P. Lovecraft books. And things in that genre where you have these horrific monsters that are described somewhat vaguely, that you can create a monstrosity in your mind that terrorizes you specifically. It's harder to do this in movies, but if you're writing it, it does take skill to write specifically enough that it actually gives them a mental image, 
but vaguely enough that they can develop it on their own. The more that they fill in, the more engaged they are with the story because they are now participating in the story. Horror is one of those genres that if your audience is passive about it and it's kind of on in the background, it's much less interesting of a book as compared to if they're listening intently, if it's an audiobook, and imagining everything as they're going on. So when you give your audience something that they can control themselves in the book, it makes them invest in it. They give part of their soul to it, kind of like the quote that we had at the beginning of the episode. And so when you have things that the audience knows that the character doesn't, when you give them the freedom to create the mental image of the character that they want or the monster that they want, they are contributing to the development of the book. And that's what gets them to hand the book to other people. That's why we're talking about audience participation, because it's how people recommend your book. If they participated personally, they're going to want other people to do it too. And if we're passing books back and forth to each other, there's an element of, I recently read the Mistborn novel, and Lee recommended that one to me. And so as I'm reading through it, I'm asking for her description of what the mist wraiths look like. So I have a little bit of her and a little bit of Sanderson in my idea of what this monstrosity is. This past week, my sister has been binging Stranger Things, and there's a flesh monster that's sort of amorphous in a few of the episodes. And I'm like, is that a mist wraith? It kind of felt like it because not only of Sanderson's description of this flesh monster, but Lee's description of this flesh monster, that the image in my head changed. I'd say it's basically a mist wraith, just less translucent. Because mist wraith, you can see through the glob of stuff (laughs) to the bone structures that they've stolen from corpses and slapped together. So you have like a horse head hanging off the side and a weird arm hanging off this way. And I love it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to hop genres a little bit here and talk a little bit about fantasy. There is a fun aspect of audience participation in fantasy, and this comes in naming your characters. We talk about how you come up with names, different interesting sounds, and masters of the English language can manipulate how letters come together so that the names make sense. One of the things people do is they look back in medieval times, if they're writing a swords and sorcery fantasy, and come up with interesting names from that time period. There's one name in particular, though, that does technically come from a medieval time period, but you will probably never see it in a swords and sorcery fantasy book because it doesn't fit. Your audience will reject it. And that name is Tiffany. Yes, Tiffany is an ancient name, but it sounds like a much more modern caricature. People hear the name Tiffany and they have a particular character in mind already. She's blonde, she's got her hair in a ponytail, she loves pink. There are certain things about the name Tiffany that don't say swords and sorcery. When I think of Tiffany, I generally think of somebody who was middle school, high school age in the 90s, and very much the prototypical 90s kid. 
this has actually become known as the Tiffany problem, where you have something that is historically accurate, but the audience doesn't believe it, so you kind of have to just work around it in your storytelling. Fantasy provides a unique opportunity for audience participation in general. You have to acknowledge the Tiffany problem. There are some things that they will reject in fantasy. But overall, you're given a lot more freedom to create, to fudge facts, to create your own facts because of the nature of the genre. Because magic. Yes. (laughs) One way that you can tell if your audience has participated well with your book is if you have created a fanficable world and fanficable characters. To define that a little bit, fanfiction is something that somebody else writes about one of their favorite stories. So I can write a fanfiction where my main character is a Ravenclaw and she's going to Hogwarts. And Hogwarts exists, the world exists. She might have even heard of Harry Potter, depending on when I said it. But it's not Harry Potter's story. I'm building off of Rowling's world. That is a fan fiction. So if you are creating in your fantasy a world that somebody else can throw their own characters into, it's a pretty well-developed world. And well-developed characters, if they can use your characters and put them in different settings and you still have that character. Which is kind of funny, because I haven't finished my book, but Lee has written fanfiction for my idea. And it helped to develop some of a backstory for my villain. I gave kind of his start to how he started going down this monstrous path, and then jumped forward in time to my main character, to her story. And Lee looked at that and was like, ooh, but what if this happens in the middle? And I was like, ooh, I like it. (laughs) We talked a fair amount about how the magic system works and how we sort magic and how the gemstones in your novel play into the storytelling. And there are very specific gemstones that are almost main characters in your novel, but I wanted to explore some of the other ones. I was like, oh, well, this could be interesting. So I ended up writing halfway between the backstory we see in the book and her book writing a little bit in between of how the villain starts his tyranny. And it's fun because it's a fun world and it's a fun, interesting magic system and it's a fun character. I'm not accessing her main character, but I am accessing the world. I'm accessing the map, the magic system, the villain. You can take this and apply it to non-fantasy works as well. If you have good, strong characters in a well-developed world within Earth your audience can still create their own stories there. This ends up being a good litmus test, at least for me. Looking at this story, is the world developed well enough that there can be a fanfiction about this world? One of my books I've written, Linked, I think it is well-developed enough. Another book that I've written, Her Hiding Place, it's not developed enough. So when I end up throwing that on your plate... That is something I'm going to need your help with, is how do we develop this world and make it deeper to make it fanficable, and therefore, when it passes that test, it's a good enough world in my mind. 
Let's go ahead and move on to the next way that you can really get an audience to participate. And this applies to all genres. Humor. Humor is such a good way to get your readers to connect with the book. I love it when I am listening to an audiobook on my way to work and I can just start laughing out loud in my car because what I am listening to is hilarious. This goes back to knowing your audience when you are writing humor. I write a fair amount of dry and dark humor in what I do. I think I'm hilarious. My grandmother does not see the humor in it at all. In the book I've been editing lately, the villain is actually the most humorous character because he's got these offhanded comments that are super dark and it's entertaining. One of the reasons I love Brandon Sanderson's writing so much is because he uses wordy, witty humor all of the time. Kind of punny based a little bit, but it's constantly there. It's wordplay. It's that sharp wit that I find most funny. Puns are especially difficult in fantasy because there's a certain element of it's all translated in a way. Your audience understands that you, the author, have translated it from this other world. We don't assume these characters are speaking English because they don't exist in a place where England existed. So the translation you kind of have to be careful with, but that's a decision you make as an author. If you ever read Don Quixote in English, it was originally written in Spanish, and there was a whole other level of humor that is lost in translation, literally. Another device that you can use in your books to give your audience a voice and a way to participate is the Greek chorus character. We talked about this in a previous episode, mostly in our secondary and tertiary characters episode, where the Greek chorus character is there to literally give a voice to the audience. In Greek plays, you'd have the chorus that would express the thoughts that the audience would likely be feeling and thinking at the time. This often ends up being your solution to wanting to explain something to the audience. So wait, why does the character not just dig under the wall? Why do they have to go crawl through the barbed wire? If you have a character ask your main character that question, you can then answer it because your audience is probably thinking that also. That character asking the question ends up playing, maybe just for that moment, the Greek chorus character. This often ends up being a student of some kind, so that the teacher can go, this is how magic works, and we can explain to the audience because this character is explaining to that character. If you don't have a Greek chorus character, it's very difficult for your audience to find a way into your world. It'll feel like schoolwork. It'll feel like a textbook, like they have to learn it as compared to they're in the world, they're participating with the characters. So the most important thing that you need to be looking for when you're going through, I would say, your second personal edit is what you want your audience to be doing at any particular moment. If you are reading through, working on fixing all those details that may draw the audience away from the book, what do you actually want them doing? Do you want them leaning forward on the edge of their seat reading? Do you want them thinking and pondering about a certain aspect? 
if you aren't doing that, then your audience won't be either. Yeah, you definitely want your audience to participate in the story. That's what this whole episode is about. And play into your hand a little bit. And if you're a skilled author, your audience will react in similar ways across different audience members. Everyone will be biting their lip at this particular moment. So something to keep in mind as you're going through that second edit is knowing what you want your audience to do. Do you want them to cheer for the hero? And in concert with that, do you want them to boo the villain? It's okay for your audience to feel things besides happiness. It's encouraged to make them feel every emotion except bored. If your audience is angry at your character, great. If you've ever read the Lord Fowl's Bane series, I was so annoyed at that main character for so long that I like threw the book across the room and didn't finish it for like two months. It was an interesting world. It was fascinating. I like this. I like that. But the main character drove me up the wall. And that's okay. So long as your audience is not bored. I can think of one book off the top of my head that I was so bored with that I set it down and didn't pick it up for like four months. The fifth Harry Potter book. Mm. Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix started out so boring. It took forever to get to something interesting because they spent so much time cleaning the house. I get it. There were some tiny little clues in there that revealed things about Horcruxes later on, but my goodness, did you have to take three chapters? <laughs> three long chapters. See, I didn't like four for that reason, because it took them forever to get to Hogwarts, and Hogwarts was the interesting part to me. Yeah, I also struggled with four as well. So boredom is the most dangerous emotion. Every other emotion is good because it means your audience is invested. They're there with the characters. Part of that investment is to have your character make a choice. And it's not a choice between good and evil because the answer to that is obvious. The choice is between bad and other bad. Your audience members should have an opinion about which choice the character should make. This is most apparent with love triangles. Your reader should have an opinion on whether they should choose Jack or Joe. And if you are skillful as an author, all of your readers will have the same opinion because you have manipulated them into having this idea of how things should work out in the end so that it can be a satisfying ending for everybody. You still understand that the character is torn, but you are rooting for something. So we briefly mentioned the beginning, but I'll say it again, because this is something that will help you if you're struggling, knowing whether or not your audience is participating. Get feedback. Find beta readers. Find people who will listen, who will read, and give you good feedback. Mark when they're bored. Mark when they sat down. Mark when they felt a strong emotion. Mark when they were interested in this aspect or if they found this interesting or their opinions on certain characters or choices. Those things that you want your audience to be noticing, get feedback to see if your audience is. And that's not just the negative things, too. When we first started out in our writing club, 
we would have a little list of different questions to answer about the short story that you read. And when we marked the page itself, it was mostly just corrections. This should be a period instead of a comma or whatever. We found that with those questions being filled out, some of the gems in the story were getting lost. So if you are beta reading, mark LOL. I laughed out loud in this particular moment so that they don't accidentally edit it because, well, maybe that joke fell flat because nobody's responding to it. I use a lot of smiley faces. So all of this is not necessarily for when you are first writing your book, because when you are first writing, it needs to be for you. As we always say, your writing is for you first. You can consider your audience in your edits. This is the perfect opportunity for you to go back and find those places where the audience is participating, where they aren't participating in your editing process. Editing is there for a reason. And I think most importantly, we mentioned it at the top of the episode, I'm mentioning it again. You are your own target audience. If you aren't entertained, they're not entertained. Laughing at your own jokes, making sure you are entertained as you write the story is how you can make sure that your audience will participate. And that all starts when you write selfishly. If you have a question or comment for our hosts or a topic you'd like us to cover, send us an email at writingroots at aspenhousepublishing.com or find us on Facebook by searching for Aspen House Publishing.